Well, good morning, Crete Church. We are so glad that you are here, and no matter where you are watching from, whether you're right here in London, whether you're watching online or at one of our campuses in Somerset, Williamsburg, or Middlesbrough, we are so glad that you are here, and I am glad to be here. Uh, for those of you that may not know me, uh, my name is Nate, and I have had the wonderful privilege over the last four and a half years to be the pastor over at our Somerset campus. And um, our family has really loved uh, and grown to love Somerset, and um, there are some big things happening over there. Uh, in just a few weeks, we get to open a permanent facility, which will be a huge deal for us. Yeah, that's um, August 8th, uh, 9.30, 11.30 over in Somerset. I hope that's okay that I share that. We shared it on social media, so whoops. Uh, so great news there, uh, but we are so glad that you're here to be a part of our series uh, today we're old school. Uh, we're going back some, to some of the Old Testament stories that we've learned and maybe that we need to go back and revisit. And I don't know about you, uh, but from my childhood, there were two things that were certain on a weekend, especially in the fall, but really all year round. One, on Saturday, Alabama football. I grew up in Alabama, so you can't hold that against me. It's just what happened. I got to Kentucky as quick as I could. Okay, so um, uh, that's what we did every Saturday. It didn't matter if they were playing or not. It didn't matter if it was football season. That's all that Alabama works on, football. Okay, and then Sunday, there was one guarantee. You would find yourself at church, or at least in my family. We were drugged to church, whether we wanted to go or we didn't want to go. There were some days where I played sick. They didn't care. They still took you to church. Okay, uh, that was the house I grew up in, and I don't know what your experience was, but there's one thing I've learned in the years, in the four and a half years we've lived in Kentucky. We're not that much different, okay? Uh, there are all kinds of churches that you'll go to. I mean, we've got the running up and down the aisle churches. Okay, we've got the bored to death churches. We've got that we're going to scream at you churches. That's what I grew up in. They screamed at you. Um, and you've got the ones that have the snakes. Um, but we don't go to those. So um, <clears throat> they're the same. We're all the same. There's not much difference between us, okay? But uh, Sunday school was a place that I always found myself connected to because I had ADD and I couldn't pay attention long enough you know, to, to listen to the main service. And they didn't have kids' church then, okay? So one, your kids are blessed to have a place where they can hear the gospel on their level. We didn't get that, okay? But Sunday school, Sunday school was the place that was comfortable for me because there was this thing called the flannel graph. And if you don't know what a flannel graph is, you've missed out in life. It ain't got... This thing right here, it ain't got nothing on it, okay? Uh, but that's what we have. And Miss Sue, she used it every week to teach us the greatest Bible stories in the scriptures. And there was uh, cleaning pipes, and there was pom-poms, and there was glue. And I'm not talking about the sissy stick stuff that doesn't make a mess. I'm talking about like a big jar of Elmer's that you can just get all over the place, and, and then the whole table sticky, and that was probably my fault. But that's okay. But Sunday school is the place where I learned some of the greatest stories in history and the greatest stories in scripture. And great stories, they really do change the way we look at life and experience the world around us. In fact, 43% of the scriptures are narrative, are stories. And stories, the stories that we find that we love the best, we tend to relate to the most because we can find ourselves in them. And in the scriptures, if you lean in, if you listen close, you can find yourself in the stories of the scriptures. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. A story that I think we can all find ourselves in. Because today we're talking about one of the most famous stories in all of the scriptures. Everybody knows it. Whether you grew up in church or you didn't grow up in church. There are people that use it as a metaphor in all of the world. And they may have never heard any story out of the Bible, but they know it. It's a metaphor in sports, in business, and in life. 
And it's a story that we all know so well that maybe, just maybe, that we've gotten part of it wrong. And it's the story of David and Goliath. Now, for David and Goliath to understand this story and the story that we're going to talk about today, we first have to understand the story of David. And David, he's just like me and he's just like you. He had family. And here's one thing that we know about family. It's messy. It's messy. We all had that crazy uncle that chased us through the yard, yard in his 4x4 truck. No, that was just me in Alabama? Okay. So, I had that. I don't know what y'all had. We've all got those crazy people in our family. And then we all have those people that have stories that we're not sure what parts of the stories we want to know. We know some of it. We know just enough that we don't want to know more of it. We know more of it, and we wish we didn't know that part of it. But we have people in our families that have stories that are just, they're just messy. And the same was true for David. His great-great-grandmother was a prostitute from Jericho. That's something you don't talk about at the dinner table with your kids. That's something you don't tell your buddies at school. His grandmother was from the Moabite tribe, and they were a people known for having a family wreath, not a family tree, if you catch my drift. And you don't tell that to your golfing buddies because that's just fodder for them to pick on you when you play golf. And, and family's messy. But David, he grew up with seven older brothers. Now, I had an older sister. That was it. And that was miserable to have an older sibling. So I can't imagine having seven older siblings, much less seven older brothers. And this was David. And when David steps foot on the pages of history, he steps into the world that is characterized by violence and conflict. Over a thousand years had passed since God had promised to Abraham that one day one of his descendants would become a nation. And that nation now was becoming a kingdom. And over that kingdom would be put in place a king. He was tall, he was dark, he was handsome, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And his name was Saul. Now, Saul was chosen based on his appearance. That when you looked at Saul, everything about him screamed king. He had charisma. He had presence, and he would become the first king over all of the people of Israel, over a people that had never had a king before. In fact, they were never intended to have a king because God wanted to be their king. But Israel, they wanted to be like all the other little kids at school, and they wanted a king too. So God gave them what they wanted. God gave them a king, and oftentimes in life, when we want something, and God gives it to us, we find out that what we wanted isn't what we wanted after all. And that's what Israel would find out. Now, to be fair to Saul, he showed promise early. He did a good job early, but being a king is a difficult job. And for, for Saul, there, there was no precedent. There was no manual. There was nobody to say, hey, this is how I did it. There was no orientation. There was no on-the-job training. It was just, hey, you got to make your own way, buddy. you got to figure this out on your own. And along the way, Saul made some very bad decisions. And finally, God got tired of it. And he decided to take the kingdom away from Saul. So he'd call his prophet Samuel. And Samuel, he would mourn the poor choices of Saul. He would mourn and pout about the performance of Saul because he was the one that anointed him. And God was like, quit your moping, okay? Quit your pouting. Quit your crying. I've got us another guy. Samuel, go down to Bethlehem. You know where that is? Just Google it, okay? You can find it. It's easy to find. Just go down to Bethlehem. You're looking for a guy named Jesse. He's got some sons. 
And today, you're going to anoint one of those sons as the next king of Israel. Now, what happens next gives us some very good insight into the family dynamics of David. And not only that, it gives us insight into David himself. Because for Jesse and his sons, this was a big day. One of his children would become the next king of Israel. So Jesse invites seven of the sons to the party. And Eliab, he shows up and he's impressive looking. He has everything you would look for in a king on the outside. But he wasn't the right man for the job because God says this to Samuel. Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he would go through seven sons, and all of them were big, fat, cold, no. And he would get to the last one, and I feel like Samuel had to be perplexed. He had to be confused. I thought you sent me here to pick one of his sons, and here they are. And, and, and here comes that awkward question, because it's like, I told you to bring all your sons. Are you dumb enough not to bring all your sons? Maybe, hey, did you possibly forget one? Is there another? Turns out there was another. Apparently, Jesse didn't think enough of David to invite him in. Now, we don't know all of the story, and we can't possibly know all of the story. Some scholars suggest that maybe, just maybe, based on a psalm, Psalm 51, that David was conceived through an affair. So therefore, he was pushed outside of the family. But no matter what, David and his family, like your family, like my family, it's filled with tension. It's filled with anger and hurt disappointment, but most importantly, it's filled with brokenness and broken people. So David shows up and God says, there's our guy. Samuel, he anoints David as the next king of Israel. Now, it would be another 15 years before David would take the throne in Israel. 15 years. But in the very next scene, 1 Samuel chapter 17, David would have an, a, def a defining moment for him and the future of his life. Now, the Philistines mustered their army for battle. Now, the Philistines, they were a people group out of the island of Crete. And they had, they had landed and made residence on the west coast of Palestine. And they were, they were a warring people. They knew how to make weapons of iron. And Saul, he would counter by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. They were just farmers. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. And the scene is set. And the smell of war is in the air. The older men, they know what to expect. Today, they could be left dead in a field for the birds to pick their bones. Today, they knew what to expect. Their faces hardened. And they knew just maybe that they would not return home to their families. The young men in the army, there was a lot of uncertainty there. They wondered if they would return home as well. But they were scared and they were nervous. And then fear shows up. The Philistine's secret weapon. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. 
He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him with a shield. Now, Goliath steps on the pages of the story, over nine feet tall. At that size, you had to have weighed north of 400 pounds. And then you add in the armor that weighs over 200 pounds and a 15-pound spearhead. This man was a killing machine in conventional warfare. He would set up a wall of spear, of, of, of uh, troops with shields, and they would provide protection for him. And we'd stand behind those shields and make shish kebabs to anybody that came near. This man was unstoppable. He was confident to the point of arrogance. And he was intimidating to see. And he would stand, Goliath, he stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? Because you don't stand a chance. Why are you coming out to fight? I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Now that's important. Choose one man to come down and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. Now, in ancient cultures, this was a common thing. This was called, this was called representative warfare. And you would take your greatest champion and you would face the opponent's greatest champion. One would fight everyone else as everyone else. And the winner would take all. And when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, the literal translation here says they were shattered, as in fear had crushed every hope that they had of winning this war. And Saul knew one thing. If anybody was responsible to go out and face this giant, it was him, because he was the tallest man in all of Israel. He was the one to go out and face this giant. But fear had overtaken faith. And hope is all but lost. And Saul, he feels trapped. He, he doesn't want to go and fight because he knows what the outcome will be. Death. He will die at the hands of Goliath. But he cannot retreat. And he is so focused in on the problem rather than his God. And for 40 days, for 40 days, morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army because that's what fear does. Every morning, it shows up to tell you how inadequate you are. And every night, it reminds you that it will be waiting for you in the morning to remind you again. Fear, it can be relentless. And if left unchecked, it will continue every single day to take more ground. And that's what the giant does. But meanwhile, in Bethlehem, 15-year-old David finds himself tending his father's flocks. Three of his older brothers are with Saul in this war, and Jesse wants to know how they're doing. 
And as a citizen of Israel, you had a responsibility to provide provisions for the army that was at war. So he gets him a cheese platter and some bread, and David becomes the first DoorDash. And he takes this food to his brother to get information, to see about their well-being. He doesn't even have a driver's license. But he would go because you know what? In small towns, if you got a permit, that works. And he would go down to the battle. But little did he know this would be a defining moment for, Paul, for uh, David and his future. It would change everything. So he leaves his sheep with a shepherd and he heads out to the valley. He arrives, he delivers the food, and he heads out to the battle line to find his brothers, to see how they're doing, to make sure they're still alive. And fear shows up, like he does every morning. Because as he was talking with them, as he was talking to his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, he came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. And as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. This is where we see the drastic difference between David and everyone else in this story. It shows us the difference in living in faith or living in fear. For Saul and Israel, fear had taken hold of them. For David, he was trusting in his faith. Because for us, and for David, faith, it changes how you hear what you hear. Faith, it changes how we see what's in front of us and the obstacles and the problems and the worries and the fears that we face. Faith, it changes the way we respond to those problems and those fears. And everyone in this story so far is paralyzed by the voice of fear. But listen to the words of David. David, he asked the soldiers, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Because here's the thing we need to understand. When you defy Israel, you defy the God of Israel. And he finds out that you're going to get taxes, you don't have to pay them, and you're going to get a wife. So he gets to keep his money and he gets a new honey. So that's good. All right? So he's got some motivation now. But there was something else at stake. Who is this pagan Philistine anyway? Who does he think he is that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? David heard the same thing that Saul and the army heard. He saw the same thing that Saul and the army saw. But he heard it differently and he saw it differently. And he would respond differently. Now, David, he has the audacity to bring God into the conversation because David knows there's something greater at stake, and that is the image of the true king of Israel. And it's not Saul, and it's not David. It's the God of Israel. Now, his brothers are there, and they question his motives because that's what big brothers do, right? What are you doing here? Now, this was Eliab his oldest brother, the one that should have been selected as king, the one that was oldest because that's what the older brother gets, first choice. What are you doing around here anyway? 
What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? Remember, he left them with a shepherd because David was responsible. So he minimizes his job. He, he questions his motives. I know your pride. I know your deceit. You're just here to watch people die. That's why you're here. And Eliab, he assumes his brother was just like him, there for the wrong reasons. But here's what we need to understand. To attempt great things means you have to be willing to run the risk of being misunderstood. You have to be willing to have your actions questioned and your motives questioned. And you have to be willing to be wrongfully labeled. And David knew that this battle wasn't worth fighting. So he would leave it. I've always heard it said, don't wrestle with a pig because you both get dirty and the pig likes it. And maybe, just maybe, David understood that, that this battle wasn't worth his time. There was a greater, greater battle to be faced. Then his question got to Saul and it was reported to the king and he says, don't worry about this Philistine. Don't worry about this guy. I will go and fight him. And Saul, just like everybody else in the story, underestimates and misunderstands David. He says, don't be ridiculous. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. You, there's no way you can fight this Philistine and win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. Again, underestimated, misunderstood. So I was like, you are outmanned. You are unprepared. You don't have the skills for this and you are not ready for this. But when your confidence is in God, you can care very little about people's lack of confidence in you. And that's where David was. He was letting all the naysayers naysay because that's what they do. They naysay. But David, he persisted. He continued because David saw the situation differently. While Saul and Israel, they saw with eyes of fear and a reality informed by fear, David saw a reality that was informed by faith. And he didn't allow how other people saw him to affect how he saw himself because he knew what he had been through. He knew what he was, had experienced. He knew what he was ready for. And that's what he would do next. He would share a little story with Saul. This is no boy. This is where we get the story wrong. This isn't just some boy. He would tell this story to Saul. He says, I've tended my father's sheep and goats for years now. And when a lion or a bear comes, I grab my club and I go after to rescue that animal. And listen to this. If that lion or if that bear shows up and it turns around on me, this don't sound like no boy. I grab it by the jaw and I club it to death. Now, what boy you know going to turn around with a club and beat a lion to death? I don't know one. But here's what David understands. He's been prepared for this moment. He says, I've been here before. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I will do it again to this pagan Philistine. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. 
Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Some of y'all have been through hell. And you can't figure out why you've been through hell. But just maybe, just maybe, God wants to use your past to help you face your current situation. Because God can use your past to prepare you for the giant you are about to face. And for all of us, and for David, God's past faithfulness, it strengthens his present faith, and it strengthens our present faith. And here's something I think we can learn from David. We should allow our past victories to fuel our future vision. And for, for David, that's exactly what it did. And for Saul, he didn't have anything else to say. He's like, I'm not going to go, so you, you know, some, somebody might as well go. You go. And may God be with you. Now, I can't tell you this. I can't tell you this. I don't know where Saul's heart was. Maybe he meant that statement. But here's what I do know. When Saul and Israel looked out into that valley, all they saw was a giant too big to defeat. But when David looked out into that valley, all he saw was a target too big to miss. So David, David, he would get the tools that he needed for the fight ahead. He would reach into the river and grab a stone. And this is one of the places Sunday school just gets it wrong. We're not talking about a little bitty pebble that couldn't kill a fly. We're talking about tennis ball sized rock. And any good man with a sling can sling that rock at over 100 miles an hour. And we've been taught that David was the underdog in this story. <laughs> Goliath is showing up to a gunfight with a knife. He grabs that stone and he runs toward that valley. He goes to face that giant. And just like fear always does, it starts to shout. Because it's big, it's loud, and it's scary. But David knows that fear is just an invitation to faith. And he would reply to that fear. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And today, the Lord will conquer you. Who will conquer you? Saul will conquer you? No. David will conquer you? No. The Lord will conquer you. The Lord will fight this battle. And in this moment, we see David do something that I think we should all do. And that's trust God with the outcome. And all the outcomes. And the rest of the story... It's history. So David, he would triumph over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. And then, that part they always conveniently left out in Sunday school because it's not exactly G-rated, but it's the best part. Then David... If you're a boy, this is the best part. I don't care what you say. That David ran over and pulled out the giant's sword, killed him, and cut off his head. You know the moment when that giant died? It wasn't when, God, when David cut his head off. It wasn't when he hit him in the head with that rock. It was the moment David trusted the outcome with God. That giant was as good as dead. And there is so much to take from this story. One, 
I want us to understand. For David, this was a victory. It was a victory that would shape his future. It was a victory that would shape his kingship. But for David, we know that this win was one of several wins. But there were also losses. There were moments where where David took his eyes off of God, lost faith in God, and chose to go his own way. And those those moments, they didn't turn out too good. But no matter where you find yourself in the game of life, you will have wins and you will have losses. It's true for David and it's true for you. And in every single moment, God's grace is at work in both. God's grace is in work in your wins and it's at work in your losses. And every moment of every single day that we have is an opportunity to experience God's grace. Win or lose. Because in Christ, we don't lose. This story, it's a reminder for all of us that how we see God, it shapes how we see everything else in life. And we can stand if we see God the right way, face to face with any giant. The thing that set David apart from everyone else in this story was his perspective, was his view and shape of God. He saw reality in its truest sense. He allowed his faith to lead his feelings. He allowed his faith to guide his perspective. And he allowed faith to move his actions. And the bigger that we see God, the smaller that the giants in front of us become. And no matter what you're facing, whether you think it's a win or whether you think it's a loss, God can bring victory in one of two ways. He's either going to defeat that giant or he's going to use that giant or maybe that lion or that bear. Whatever that problem is that you stand facing, he's going to use it for good in your life. And it should tell us something. That no matter what is behind me and no matter what is before me, God is greater. For some of us here today, there's a weight of worry on your shoulders. It's not something that's happened, it's just something on your mind. But let me tell you this, God is greater than your greatest worry. Whatever you're worried about, maybe you've got a kid that has walked away from home, he's lost. Maybe they need to come back to Jesus. I don't know what it is, but they're often wondering, and your greatest worry is that they'll never come back. God's greater. Maybe you're worried about losing your job. Heck, maybe you're worried about finding a job. Maybe you're worried about rejection or loneliness or maybe your financial future. God is greater than your greatest worry. You just need to trust the outcome to Him. Maybe for some of us, you've got a fear that you can't let go. God, He's greater than your greatest fear. No matter what you're facing, maybe you fear death. Maybe it's your death. Maybe it's somebody in your family's death. Maybe it's just someone you deeply care about. God's greater than that fear. He's greater than that fear of failure. As a perfectionist, you think, I've got to get everything right. And if I can, I'm not even going to try. No. 
Don't feel fear failure. Failure is not a person, it's an event. You are not identified by your failure. There is nothing to fear. Maybe your fear of being judged or just uncertainty. Maybe one of your greatest fear is getting cancer. God is greater than all of those fears. And maybe, just maybe, you're sitting here today and that worry that you've had, that fear that you faced, it's become a reality. And it is now a full-fledged problem in your life. God, He's greater than your greatest problem. No matter what you're currently facing, God is so much bigger than whatever it is that stands in that valley. No matter what it is that wakes you up in the morning and screams at you and tells you you can't, God is bigger. No matter what meets you at bedtime and tells you I'll be waiting for you in the morning, God is so much bigger. That health problem that you're facing, God's bigger. That relationship that's broken, whether it's a friendship, whether it's a marriage, God is so much bigger. That habit you got, that addiction you can't break, God is so much bigger. That financial crisis that you can't just get past, you can't seem to get out of debt, God is so much bigger. But for all of us in the room, there's a greater application. We've been told that we are David in the story. It's not right. You are not David. Yes, we should have faith. But you do not go fight the giants. There is a greater David that has conquered the giants for us. There is a greater David in the, in the name of Jesus. He would show up on the pages of history in a little town called Bethlehem by a virgin mother and her husband. I don't even know how that works. But they were misunderstood. They were misrepresented. And he would go through life and he was hated by his brothers. And he was misunderstood and he was misrepresented. He was underestimated. He was overlooked. But he would take down the giant of guilt, shame, and death. And he would conquer sin on our behalf. He would go into representative warfare. He would be one for all. And when we place our trust in him, there is no battle that we can't go into and know that the victory is certain for us because our king is undefeated. He would fight death and he would win. And the only debt that could ever harm us has been paid in full. And for us, it should be a reminder because God has been faithful in the past. I can be hopeful in the future no matter what is standing in my path. Father, help us to find ourselves in this story. And in this story, we are not someone that has a battle to fight. We are someone to lay our trust in the one who fights our battle for us. And he has already won. So today, no matter what it is that we face in this day, in this present moment, help us to know that our trust in you conquers that. That we can pull from our past and know that we have confidence in our current situation. And we can go through this current season and know that it's going to benefit us in the future. 
that you may just be preparing us in this moment. But Father, help us to place our trust, our faith, and to keep our eyes on you when fear shows up because you have conquered it all. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.